Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about Mexico, Mexico's economic history, its trade, and its trade deals. We'll be talking to Ernesto Zadillo. He is a PhD economist and the Frederick Eisman 74 Director of the Yale University Center for the Study of Globalization. And from 1994 to 2000, he was President Ernesto Zadillo of the United Mexican States. Yep, Ernesto was President of Mexico. Ernesto, hello. Hello, great to be with you. Great to have you. I want to start by going back to the early 1980s, uh, so before you were president. Can you describe Mexico's economy and, and its relationship with the world? Mexico used to have a rather restrictive trade policy. Mexico's approach to development relied a lot on import substitution. That was, let's say, the, the guiding almost ideology of uh, trade policy in Mexico. And that, I think, was part of the problems that the Mexican economy had. Were there examples in Mexico at this time uh, that the government was really trying to grow domestically through industrial policy? Well, it was across the board. Uh, At some point in the early 80s, I would say particularly after the explosion of the crisis in 82, practically every import was subject to permits. That is to say, not only there were tariffs, but there were quantitative restrictions. Uh, And that had been inherited from from the past experience of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, where everything was very much uh, controlled, either by high tariffs or by import uh, permits. But it was, uh, you know, a policy that was highly distorted because basically was uh, a policy conceived for the domestic market. So the volumes of production never really allow for the economies of scale for Mexico to have a competitive automotive industry like uh, the one was developing Japan and also later, a little bit later on, Korea. And later on, with the opening of the Mexican economy, Mexico itself. You mentioned Mexico's economic problems. And there I think you're referring to the economic crisis that Mexico experienced in 1982. It was a very closed economy at the time, so this wasn't really caused by trade. But Mexico then went through a number of really tough years economically, slow growth, high inflation, and it eventually also undertook a massive program of domestic macroeconomic policy reform. That was a really big deal at the time, but it's not something I'm going to ask you about here. But can you tell us about how Mexico's trade relationship with the outside world began to change during this period of the mid-1980s? Little by little, some reforms were being uh, introduced. Uh, It took time to think that maybe it was not a good idea to have such a close economy. And in 1985, the decision was taken to become a member of the GATT. The GATT is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the multilateral system of international trade rules that was the predecessor to the World Trade Organization. So what specifically did Mexico have to do in 1985 to gain entry into the GATT? 
Well, it was only a matter of taking the decision to say, okay, we are going to be members of the GATT. And at the time, the disciplines to be a member of the GATT were not uh, terribly difficult, which was the other irony. I mean, countries like Brazil and India, which were equally protective or more protectionist than Mexico, were members of the GATT. So it was hard to understand why Mexico didn't want to be a member of the GATT. But finally, we became members of the GATT. Nothing bad happened. And I think that gave confidence to the government to push a little bit farther in the direction of opening. This was all before there were any trade deals at all with the United States. Uh, so let's, let's take us from membership of the GATT to NAFTA. Why did Mexico decide it wanted to be in this trade agreement with, with the U.S.? We were ready for taking other steps and said, okay, if we are bound to do further unilateral liberalization, why don't we get something in exchange for that rather than doing it only unilateral? Because we were convinced that Mexico needed to open up more its economy. Was part of the idea to use NAFTA to lock in reforms that had already been made? Not really. Uh, I have read that story, but uh, no, no. I, and I was in the discussions. I think this was about opening up the economy to make it a, a more competitive, to introduce a more significant export uh, bias in the economy, and therefore, you know, leave behind this import substitution uh, idea or dependency that uh, we had inherited from the past. We needed to be an exporter, and there was confidence that Mexico could do it. So you tell this as if it's a very positive and easy story, but was there significant political pushback at the time that, that slowed this down at all? Well, no, I think in retrospect, it was a rather expeditious process. Of course, there was a, a lot of discussion. There were significant fears in the private sector. Many people would say, oh, we are going to be devastated. How can we compete with the biggest player in the global economy, which is uh, the United States? And the government would say, well, yes, uh, we are not going to compete. We are going to go into their market, and this will open uh, enormous opportunities. But if we want to be competitive, we need to be able to import also from them because they are efficient and competitive. Were there industries that, though, was agriculture really pushing back against NAFTA? Were they worried about competing with the United States? Well, they, there were voices, but that, let's say, opposition was significantly mitigated as two things happened. Number one the liberalization of the agricultural sector would take much longer than the other liberalization. So it was not, as some people have said, you know, Mexico opened up its agriculture overnight. That is absolutely not true. So you see all these uh, sometimes ridiculous statements saying, look what happened with NAFTA for Mexican peasants or agricultural people. And they are talking about a period in which NAFTA have not really come into effect for uh, the agricultural sector. And the other was that the government consolidated a number of all programs of support for people, you know, owners of land producing in the agricultural sector. 
and make it very transparent and put more resources, uh, it was called at the time Procampo. And that, I think, uh, made clear that the government was not simply to leave the agricultural sector, you know, without uh, any uh, support. Could you talk a bit about the concessions that the Mexicans won from the U.S.? So you didn't want to do this unilateral tariff reduction where you were just handing over your chips. What what chips did you get from them? Well, we got uh, more uh, market access, lower tariffs for, for Mexico. Of course, proportionally, it was not uh, as significant as those, uh, you want to call it concessions, Mexico did, because Mexico came from very high protection and reduced it significantly. And the United States was already with rather low MFN tariffs. But still, we got preferential treatment. That's what uh, free trade areas are. Uh, But it was not only that, I think we became a place attractive for foreign investment, right? Not only because we had a less distorted economy, but there was, for example, an instrument for dispute settlement. So that was a good element uh, and other rules that will make it easier and, and better for foreign investors from the United States and Canada to be in, in my country. So definitely, you know, we, we had uh, a lot of things uh, to win in the, in the agreement. So that's interesting. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about this ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement? You're sort of characterizing it as a win, but many people might say that, you know, there would be disputes brought against Mexico, that it might actually be tying the hands of the Mexican government, not allowing it to pursue some policies that it might want to out of fear that it might be sued by foreign investors in these courts. Was that the perspective at the time? How was this? No, I think that was not, uh, we, we didn't have a paranoid perception. We were convinced that uh, the Mexican economy was going to modernize and to have an export orientation, we needed foreign investment, and that this will be a good instrument to offer additional legal security to, to foreign investors. And it was a rather, I would say, cheap way to provide that securities. I mean, uh, we were very aware that we wanted to be part of a rules-based system. That's why we went into the GATT and that by going into NAPTA, we wanted to have also a rules-based system because it works both ways. You don't want to be subject to arbitrary actions. Then you have to be willing to give assurances that you will not incur in arbitrary actions, or if you do it, you will have to pay a cost for that. NAPTA entered into force in January of 1994, and... You were elected later that year and became president in December of 1994. So was your job essentially to lay back and enjoy the fruits of this wonderful deal? Well, I, I, I wish it had been like that. It would have been interesting. But unfortunately, it was not uh, the case because when I came into office, some macroeconomic and financial conditions had deteriorated a lot uh, in Mexico. And my first duty was to address that uh, massive uh, financial crisis. Uh, Having said that, of course, uh, being part of NAPTA 
and having developed uh, this new partnership with the United States, which I inherited, although I had been part of the previous economic team, I mean, but I, as, a, as a president, I inherited that condition. I think that was a leverage to get the support of the United States when we were putting together an external financing package uh, with the IMF, with the World Bank, and we also knocked the door of the United States. And I am sure that uh, President Clinton, who was not only a good friend of Mexico, also was a good friend of his own country, first and foremost. And he thought that it would not be in the interest of the United States to have uh, its newly acquired free trade partner to go into an impossible situation because this was a condition of financial panic and capital flight and enormous difficulties for the banking sector. So we needed the external financing and we borrowed money from the U.S. and from the other important players. Unfortunately, after one year, we went through the storm, I would say, successfully. So this is the, the, the peso crisis. I suppose the danger is that because this happened so soon, after NAFTA came into effect, if you're looking back, sometimes it's possible to forget that there was also this massive financial crisis that happened to coincide with with this new trade deal coming in. And so there's a, there's a question of when looking to see what happened in terms of Mexico-US trade relations, how much of that was because of the trade deal and how much of it was being driven by these very large currency movements um, or even you know the, the, the response to those. From your perspective, what happened because of NAFTA that might not have happened without that, that deal? In the initial years of NAFTA, it's very hard to identify losers uh, because many of the old manufacturers adapted very quickly. Inside some sectors, I think probably or for sure there were some firms that disappeared or were consolidated into others. But I would say that overall, the Mexican experience was uh, relatively smooth. And on the other hand, I think many people in the agricultural sector, well, saw the opportunities to become exporters. And you have products now, Mexico, that you couldn't see back then anywhere in the United States. Now you can find them in any supermarket, not least avocados, delicious Mexican avocados. When I think of the effects of, of NAFTA in terms of the effects on, on inequality and, and income distribution, there, there are two things that I've heard. One is the standard one that lots of Mexican autos workers benefited, perhaps at the expense of workers in, in the US. And then a second one is that the benefits within Mexico were very unequally distributed. Um, so it was really the North that, that benefited from all this integration and there were relatively fewer spillover effects to the South. Do you think there's any truth in either of those claims? No. You know, in the automotive industry, I think if we think back uh, on the conditions of the automotive industry in the U.S. back in the late 80s and early 90s, you have to think of an industry that had serious competitiveness and productivity issues. 
In fact, there was a big paranoia in this country about the Japanese producers. I would say that, if anything, NAFTA was used by American companies to enhance whatever competitiveness they had at the time. So in a way, you know, it extended their useful life as they were back then. Uh, having this uh, integration in NAFTA and the opportunity to move uh, part of their operations to a lower cost location was a positive element for the U.S. industry. So there, the argument is that that if NAFTA hadn't happened, the Americans would have lost even more jobs. So yes, some assembly jobs moved to Mexico with NAFTA, but a lot of jobs were able to remain in the United States because of the North American industry's newfound competitiveness because of the deal. Okay then, so what about this concern with increased inequality within Mexico? Within Mexico, right. Well, again, we have to, number one, say Mexico has had unfortunately, a very poor income distribution, uh, well before NAFTA and after NAFTA. Things have improved over the last 20 years a little bit, but this is not, I would not claim that it was because of NAFTA. It was because the government uh, started to apply a more transparent and uh, direct uh, policies to support the income of the poorest people in Mexico. I would say that the problems of income distribution of Mexico are much uh, bigger than trade policy. These are structural problems that uh, need to be addressed, certainly with economic growth, but with more uh, efficient ambitious social policies. I want to talk a little bit about Mexico's trade relationship with the rest of the world. So the late 1990s, NAFTA is being phased in. You've got tariffs toward the United States falling. What's going on with Mexico's trade policy toward the rest of the world? Again, we said we are now open with the United States. We need to be open to the rest of the world. And uh, are we going to do it unilaterally, or how do we do it? Say, well, no, let's negotiate uh, free trade agreements. So Mexico became sort of world champion of these instruments because at some point Mexico had free trade agreements with more than 30 countries. And that's what we did after after NAFTA. But let me, let me interject. But, but initially that wasn't the approach. If you look at the data, at least, in the NAFTA period, the, the late 90s, it looks like Mexico is raising their MFN tariff, basically tariffs toward the rest of the world. In the early 90s, toward China, they'd put anti-dumping duties on 20% of imports coming in from China. So I agree later on that seemed to be happening, but during this initial period, it, it, it did seem like protection was being raised toward the rest of the world. Well, I think there are several cases we raise in 95 tariffs in preparation for a negotiation with the European Union, to be frank. 
Okay, so you have your big news. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess uh, Pascal and me knew that when we sat down to negotiate the free trade agreement with the European Union. Uh, and I suspect that that was an encouragement for them to negotiate the free trade agreement. I, I never said it like this, but it's true. But you didn't need to be a genius to realize that, yes, uh, you notice that movement, yes, there was a movement, but it was moving, you know, a piece in, in the chessboard. And the Europeans reacted, and we ended up with, you know, a free trade agreement in their own idea of a free trade agreement after a few years. So I think that was a good move. With China, there was always this big concern. And as we know today, the concern was well-founded. I think it's little known that the last country that closed the negotiation with China for accession to the WTO was Mexico. It was not the United States was Mexico. For good reason, we knew that China was going to be a formidable player precisely in the markets in which we knew we had had or we had significant comparative uh, advantages. But we knew, we knew that during the second half of the 90s and we told everybody that wanted to hear that story. We have to get ready because they are coming. But uh, anyways, they came in 2001, and uh, you had seen these measures of, uh, indeed, China hitting Mexico in uh, the U.S. market. But well, by then I was not in government, but I said, okay, we knew that this was going to happen. Why we didn't, we are not reacting to be more competitive, uh, deepening the process of domestic reform in Mexico. So why is it that China was such a, challenge for Mexico in ways that are different from, say, Brazil or Chile or some of these other countries, China wasn't a challenge for them, but really it was an opportunity for them. Is it what Mexico makes that competes with what China makes? And that's the issue, whereas Brazil... Well, of course, Chile, we were competing in manufacturers that where Mexico had comparative advantage, labor-intensive, not very simple manufacturers. We were already in a little bit more complex manufacturers. And our Chinese friends uh, learned very quickly to do that and to conceive uh, this uh, very well to play this game of global value change. They imported a lot to export a lot. How about Mexico trying to sell things to China? So the story with Brazil, we know, is it has commodities, it has soybeans, Chile has copper, a lot of emerging economies had things that China wanted to buy. We don't have primary products as uh, those countries, so we didn't have the commodity boom in the sense that they had. I want to finish by asking you about about the USMCA, new NAFTA. Well, I, I, first I thought it was a very bad idea to renegotiate NAFTA because you start those processes which can be Pandora boxes, because immediately a lot of interests start to try to interfere or to put pressure to get something out of the, of the process. 
And in this case, it was even more worrisome because the premises with which the U.S. government opened the negotiation, it was started with the premise that NAFTA had caused a lot of damage in the United States. On the other hand, I, I am very pleased that now we have something. It's the place of NAFTA is going to be taken by this new instrument. The sooner we see this instrument in place, the better to get certainty to economic agents in the three countries. One argument that you hear a lot about in the U.S. is from the labor movement, and, and they complain that one of the problems has been that effectively there's there's wage suppression going on in Mexico, that that there's you know that people aren't allowed to to unionize, they're not allowed to. Uh, so you're shaking your head. So what's what's your response to those accusations? You know, Mexico then, has less flexible labor laws than the United States. Period. That's not true. Mexico, if you work in the formal sector of the economy you are subject to more labor rigidities than in the United States. So if you are unionized in Mexico, and unions do exist, and nobody prohibits by any means the establishment of unions, you have stronger protections. Not nominal, because this is a richer country, but legally stronger protections than those in the United States. So that is not true. The problem in Mexico are those that cannot have a job in the formal sector of the economy. Uh, That is our our big uh, national drama. So that is not true. And of course, wages are lower in Mexico because productivity is still lower in Mexico. And I would tell unions in the US, well, you cannot have it both ways as a country because the U.S. has got the better deal in this globalization game, because the U.S., and this, the U.S. has to receive all the merit because of its entrepreneurial capacity, because of uh, everything that has happened in, in, the, in the country historically, is getting the best deal, because the jobs that are being created in the modern economy uh, are the jobs that are staying in this country jobs in the prefabrication and the postfabrication are the better jobs because they are better paid, they are cleaner jobs, they happen to be much more interesting jobs from many perspectives than those uh, which are purely in the fabrication activities, right? So you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be the inventor, the financial guy, the commercialization guy, the design guy, and also to have the fabrication if you want to be efficient, if you really want the economic process to create wealth in the new economy. Ernesto, thank you very much. Thank you. And that is all from Trade Talks. A huge thanks to President Ernesto Zedillo of Mexico, who is now the Frederick Eisman 1974 Director of the Yale University Center for the Study of Globalization. And as always, a big thank you to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Again, make sure to check out our brand new website, www.tradetalkspodcast.com, and send us email suggestions at email at tradetalkspodcast.com. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. 
That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to having presidents who also hold a PhD in economics, two would be better than one.